Check out sponsor Aviatrix's flight training to learn about multi-cloud networking and security from the Aviatrix perspective. Aviatrix.com slash flight dash training. Worth your time if you're defining your company's multi-cloud strategy or want to nail down your Aviatrix certified engineer cert. Aviatrix.com slash flight dash training. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Strap in, everybody. This show is basically getting on the back of a rocket ship and going for a ride. Our guest today is Adil Ahmad, and we are talking about new security thinking for cloud. And, and the big idea here is a lot of folks are trying to take the security designs that they had built for an on-prem environment and apply them to cloud. And Adil is arguing very well, I might add, that that doesn't work and that's a dumb idea and that can actually lead to problems and we need to rethink how we do security in cloud. And the rocket ship part is Adil's brain because the man is full throttle all the way. Wouldn't you agree, Ned? I would. And I don't want to belabor the point. I don't I don't want to ramble on my own because Adil has got so much to say. All I want to say is he asks two critical questions that everyone should be asking the why and the so what. And if you're not sure what that means, you will find out in this episode. Enjoy this episode with Adil Ahmad, Implementation Services Lead at HashiCorp. Adil Ahmad, welcome to the Day 2 Cloud podcast. Uh, it's fun to talk to you, man. I got to say because I've listened to a couple hours of you on the HashiCast where you were talking about a lot of these security ideas. Uh, Ned's listened to them as well. So we're both pretty keen to dive into some of these concepts some more. But before we do that, you, you got to tell us, uh, who are you? What do you do? Hi, uh, hi Ethan. My, my name is Adil. Uh, I'm from the UK, London. Uh, I work for uh, HashiCorp. I've been there for about last 11 months now. Um, and yeah, by the way, we working for HashiCorp and whatever I'm about to say is not representative of HashiCorp. For all my personal opinions from, from my experiences that I've picked up from uh, in this role, as well as actually significantly in my last role, where I've worked for a tier one investment bank, uh, working on Google Cloud uh, and working very closely with uh, the UK regulations. Okay, man. Gotcha. Okay. So we're, we're, we're very clear on this. Everyone listening. Yeah. Idea works for HashiCorp. This is not, this is not him <laughs> speaking on behalf of HashiCorp. This is a deal speaking on behalf of a deal and all of his real world hands-on experience with the, Security craziness, the crazy ideas you're going to bring to us, Adil. And so, and so we should start there to set this show up for everybody in a sentence or maybe to explain what SecOps folks are getting wrong about practical security in the cloud. Maybe you could cite a few examples to help us get our heads around it. Yeah, sure. Um, so my, uh, my take, uh, this is from my observation uh, and my experiences working in the cloud uh, very, very closely with, with security, is that there is this common uh, misunderstanding that the, the components in the cloud, the constructs in the cloud are very much the same as the constructs in, in, in on-prem, such as a VM or networking. Uh, and with that in mind, um, there is this trend of applying the very same controls that you would apply on-prem uh, and, uh, and in, uh, applying that in the cloud. More so, especially around uh, defense in depth and how some of these multiple layers are not necessarily applicable in the cloud. Um, definitely, especially when it comes to understanding the, 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 the impact of some of these perceived risks. Right, right. One thing that I've seen a lot of security professionals and even IT ops folks do is they kind of treat the cloud as just another data center. 
And there's so many more services and constructs in the cloud that they could be using. And they just they totally missed the boat. I think you have a couple examples of cases where security provincial is treating the cloud like just another data center. Yeah. Could, you, could you jump into one or two of those? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think one of the biggest examples actually is that in my, in my previous role, I've uh, I actually had to work hard um, working with both the networking team and the security team in convincing them that there's no need to carry out multiple micro net network segmentation in the cloud, especially when it comes to uh, around VPCs. Um, and if I use Google Cloud, for example, where uh, they have this concept of a shared VPC, I believe AWS has recently started rolling this out, where you can have multiple uh, billing accounts or B2B projects attached to this shared VPC. Uh, therefore, all of these different uh, um, multi-tenants are actually using the same VPC. Uh, but I can even go as far as saying, actually, and this is what we, where I, I really pushed hard uh, with both InfoSec and, and our security team, having the backing of Google, is that I went as far as even uh, pushing for having uh, a dev environment and a prod environment in, a, in what we would seem to be a single subnet in Google Cloud. What we must, what we must understand, two things, right, is the that we know, well, most of who are working in the cloud know and understand that there is no broadcast domain. Therefore, when you think about a slash 24 subnet, for example, if there is no broadcast domain, then intrinsically two IP addresses within that range shouldn't be able to talk to each other, you know, because there is no ARP, they'll be able to discover each other. That's the first thing. In, in GCP, however, in reality, that slash 24, in reality, each IP address is a slash is a slash 32. Therefore, it's in its own broadcast format and they actually root to each other, providing there is a firewall rule that allows them to talk to each other. So Adil, let's let's just park right there for a second and, and recap that. In other yeah. words, the way routing from host to host happens in the cloud is not the same as we would think of it if we were building a traditional networking VLAN. There's no broadcast domain, as you're talking about, so no means to discover. And in fact, they're not even in the same, what we would call layer two address space. They, we can't, they're not in the same VLAN, so to speak. They have similar address space. They're in a common block of IP addresses, but that doesn't mean it's functioning in the GCP cloud in this example, like it would function on a switch on your on-prem uh, network. So instead, you're saying what's really happening is every host is its own standalone little domain. In order for each of those hosts to talk to one another, there's got to be a firewall rule that permits that. And so if that's the case, we need to, we can rethink then what the security looks like so that the hosts are protected one from another. Just doing the same old thing we did on-prem and applying it to this construct in GCP would make no sense. Exactly. And that's, the, and that's the point I'm trying to Networking in, in the cloud is not networking. The, 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 the constructs are not the same. I mean, these, the, the, they are just a facade, or, and I, this is my opinion again, I believe that they're just a facade to uh, ease the transition for the consumer of the cloud from moving away from this on-prem onto the cloud, especially because these, if we understand these networking constructs or subnets, let's just call them subnets, you know, uh, um, and micro subnets or VPCs, they're all they all have API endpoints, right? So if you have an API endpoint, therefore this is a programmable object. When you understand that, you realize that how you, you would manage that differently. In, in Google Cloud, for example, you have IAM permissions against subnet, right? How do you have IAM permissions against subnet? You, you, you have, I mean, it makes sense to have IAM permissions against programmable objects. 
So when you understand and realize, actually, in reality, they're not subnets. It's just a contiguous block. Um, and inherently, you not uh, are not able to talk to each other unless there is some kind of default allow internal firewall in place. Um, so once you understand that, you realize actually, forget having multiple VPCs. Why do I even need to have multiple subnets? You know, providing, and why do I even need to go down the whole static IP addressing? Why do I even need to do any uh, subnet planning? Why do I need an IPAM? Because your boundaries are different now. So again, on-prem, the traditional way you would design a network would be you build a block of addresses. They can probably talk to one another. If you need to firewall between a group of addresses, you have some kind of a layer three uh, point that traffic has to route between. And then there's firewall rules applied at that point, access list rules, some kind of a control there. But since the paradigm is completely changed up in, again, in your, your GCP example here, why would you build it that way? It doesn't make sense. Where your checkpoints are, uh, are in different places now. And so it does really change your, your network design. And again, just underscoring your point, doing design and applying a security paradigm exactly like you did on-prem up in the cloud doesn't make sense. It isn't the right thing. And I guess to your point, deal, it's making things worse or needlessly complex 100 and that's what I, that's that's the crux of it right when you read these kind of security reports out there the, the cloud security reports and the devil's reports are out there you know most of them there's a, there's a trend about how a lot of these vulnerabilities or or, or, or security incidents are related to these misconfiguration and, and i 100 believe that the misconfiguration is related to the extreme complexity that we produce as consumers within the cloud uh it's it's, it's, it's important we understand and, and I believe, from my experience, there is this piece of education that, A, as consumers, we have the responsibility to take upon ourselves, but also how our cloud providers would also need to really push on the fact of how the power, there is paradigm shift and how that has shifted and how we should be expected to consume the cloud. I think there is some of that also missing. I mean, you have docs, public docs out there explaining that, but you know, to the kind of to the general enterprise, uh, these are fundamental uh, pieces that really need to be in place and that would help security and regulations really understand where the risk is or where the attack surface is and, and therefore what the attack vector is. Right. I'm wondering if the cloud providers, to a certain degree, you kind of said they they wanted to present these uh, familiar constructs to the people consuming the cloud. So they called it a subnet, but wait, that's not really a subnet. And they called it uh, you know, a, a VPC, a virtual private cloud, but that's not, it's not a, an accurate descriptor. Uh, so maybe they shot themselves in the foot a little bit by going with this familiar terminology that doesn't actually map to the construct that it's applied to. Um, I guess another question that I would have is because there's all these new features and solutions in the cloud, uh, is there stuff that SecOps is missing out on? by being so focused on the traditional way of approaching security. 100%. I mean, let's let's take this example where because we're so focused on these multiple lower level uh, lower layers essentially if you look at the kind of shared responsibility model, you know, the clouds are very clear to say, you know, from the host below, everything is, uh, you know, within the cloud responsibility. And they literally meant that, you know, <laughs> this is the thing, right? Where we think, oh, okay, yeah, networking is your responsibility, but the networking on our layer is our responsibility. Well, it's not networking, is it? <laughs> it's anything above that. At that point, it's just applications. And this is what we need to understand. Um, once we understand, we realize that let's, let's 
why don't we start backwards? Let's start with, or top down rather, let's just say, right? Is that let's start with securing the application and work our way downwards. It's in essence, there's a lot of focus, especially in my experience, when when uh, enterprises are going into the cloud, the very first thing they want to do is work on, on the network. Uh, and they're asked to work on the uh, um, the perimeter. Before that, no one's allowed to get in. So the perimeter needs to be secured, right? But there is no perimeter, you know, even though clouds have been saying that there is no perimeter, why do we still focus on perimeter? Because we the penny hasn't dropped for us to understand that a perimeter would mean that there is a broadcast domain and that you're limiting this broadcast domain around the perimeter, which then uh, it, you think is, okay, even if the data is open somewhat, we have a secondary protection here that they can't get out of. But it's not true, right? For example, if you were to create, say, a GKE uh, and um, you put it inside the VPC and you've now added this perimeter around VPC, anything that goes out in and out of must go through some virtual you know, network appliance, but the moment you you turned on public IP addresses for this GKE, it's not using your Palo Alto or F5 or whatever it is that you've got as a virtual appliance. It's now going through the back end of, of GCP's uh, um, underlay, and thereafter from there, it's going out to the internet. So there is no perimeter. <laughs> and <laughs> understanding that. that. It's something we've brought up multiple times, uh, especially in the context of networking, is traditionally in your data center, there's only a couple ways out. And those ways out are guarded by metal boxes sitting there being the the sentry for you. Uh, whether or not those were always configured properly and it, you know, usually just a tangle of uh, firewall rules that no one can actually comprehend. <laughs> but uh, those physical boxes were there. When you move to a cloud construct, you don't have that physical box sitting there. And any developer who with sufficient permissions can just say, oh, I want a public IP address assigned to my instance. And they got it. And suddenly you have another entry point in, into the network. So what's what's the answer instead of trying to set up this fake perimeter? I think you, you sort of alluded to it with the idea of identity being a, a big component and, and you know, service accounts uh, within GCP would be an example of that. 100%. It, it does all come down to identity. I mean, we've... As you know, I, I was a previous network engineer, right? And we all are familiar with the concepts of routine, the concept of segregation around this, but we've never called it identity, you know? And, and only now when we're exposed to these ideas, we understand that we were treating IP addresses as identity, right? Well, so, well there's been, I mean, in, in fairness to the industry, there's been some attempts at identity, but there's never been any one consistent theme beyond typically five tuple that ever became identity consistently across vendors. You did have some vendors doing some fancy stuff and, and adding a lot more metadata to give you a more intelligent identity of what that flow was and user context and so on. But it's been uh, not industry standard, shall we say, a deal. And really, so just to go back to your point, yeah, IP address kind of has ended up being the default identity for all of its shortcomings. 100%. And what we need to understand is, right, is that the the arena has changed, right? As in that the identity is no longer the IP address or, or one must accept that the identity is now operating at a different layer. And to the, to the extent, even network, in my opinion, networking professionals need to be aware or application aware and understand that the application itself has now become the identity. And if you have, for example, two applications you're able to identify and allow or deny access, even, even from a networking perspective, 
let's just, let's put this in a networking perspective. When we have you know firewalls, we would allow a contiguous block that's assigned to a set of applications to then talk to another contiguous block, which assigns to a, another set of applications. At this point, what we're saying is actually, actually app A from this set of applications is only allowed to talk to app C from that set of applications, which is far more secure than allowing a big continuous block to talk to each other because you don't have any control. At for example, um, if there's a three tier application, you have your web tier, app tier, and DB tier. Well, you're only allowing the app tier to talk to a DB tier in another application or, or, or in another project, right? So you can't do that with networking unless you start assigning, like you say, making those subnets even smaller. We, okay, so it sounds like you're talking about you know, different groups of applications that are classified by some kind of metadata. Things like IP addresses are ephemeral, so you can't bank on them as new nodes come up in an app pool, let's say, because we're doing auto scaling. The IP address is going to be whatever it is. It really doesn't matter. You still need to be able to enforce a security policy no matter what IP was assigned. And so you're talking about identity, again, higher up the stack where that identity is determined what that flow is. But what I'm not clear on from this perspective, Adia, where are you talking about enforcement happening? Is it still there is a control layer in there that is mapping whatever that IP address, ephemeral though it is, happens to be and doing an IP drop? Or are we talking about drops and blocks happening somewhere else, not at the IP layer at all? 100%. I mean, the, the point is, if we accept that IP address is no longer a, uh, uh, an accepted identity, then all of these controls that we talk about, especially flow controls, are only around identity. And if the only accepted identity at that point, say, example, in Google Cloud, is Google Cloud identity, then why would you add these other controls that are not attached to an identity or that you're forming as your own identity, but they're not identities. Like, for example, if we say that two applications, that a service account is allowed to access GTS bucket, for example, right? How do you add a, a, a network layer to that? You know, and how do you identify that? You know, it, it... So you're moving enforcement way up the stack to, uh, I mean, are we saying firewalls don't matter anymore because of things like IAM controls then? We, what I'm saying is firewalls. Uh, I am is the new firewall. <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> Rather, yeah. I mean, the thing is, even the firewall as a concept, right? We have to understand. Let's go back to DCP firewall rules. DCP firewall rules, although they're managed centrally, they're actually enforced at the host level. So it's, it's actually a host-based firewall. But it's distributed, right? If we take the, the the traditional concept of the firewall, it's a centralized, you know, device that we're expecting all the traffic to come through here, and at that point, the firewall is then deciding which way. It goes to right but the moment we start going from a, a more decentralized enforcement approach the firewall or the, the concept of firewall it, it is not applicable here uh unless we're saying obviously this is distributed host-based firewall at that point again if we say the host is ephemeral then the firewalling is now taking place at the application level an example would be on by proxy let's say is that enforcement and then you have a, you know a central control plane like you know, ECO or something, or service mesh, basically, essentially doing that. That's an example. Let's go back to, say, Google Cloud or AWS. Their, their control plane is the IAM, and the identity or the enforcement essentially is happening at the end of it, but it, it's to the um, the application, the API endpoint. So if you're calling GCS bucket or if you're calling a VM, that API endpoint is protected around an IAM and and, 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 then, a, and an entity or principle that's allowing to uh, um, call those endpoints. Right, right. Because we're not just talking about virtual machines anymore with IP addresses. We're talking about all the other cloud services that exist inside a public cloud. And 
those don't have nice, tidy IP addresses or ranges that you can necessarily assign. So we need that extra metadata to control access to those. The pushback I would have on this is the firewall doesn't just do allow deny lists based off of tuples, right? Some firewalls also do packet inspection and maybe even looking for uh, suspicious traffic or malformed packets or requests that aren't expected. And they're filtering out that sort of stuff, too. And if someone has managed to compromise, say, your application servers somehow, and now they're trying to land and expand, I don't see the identity piece working to filter out what could potentially be a lateral attack. So how do you how do you guard against that vector without a firewall doing that inspection? Well, I, I would disagree there, right? Because this, the assumption here is if you're if you're already taking this single layer control, uh, uh, which is the identity-based approach, at which point the assumption should be that you're already applying the principle of least privileged access. Essentially, an application would only have access to what it needs to. So if there was to be some vulnerability or some you know, rogue action taking place within that application, you know, your firewall cannot prevent them from uh, accessing what they already have access to. Right. And not, and it, whatever don't, they don't have access to, well, the firewall hasn't really added any value for those uh, applications that they never had access to in the first place. Uh, well, OK, I'm going to push back, too, because Ned's argument is the firewall is going to see certain packets that trip a signature that uh, fail some sort of a deep packet inspection and discard them before they ever get to the application. Well, what's the problem with it gets to the application? Let's say the application is not patched to current vulnerability standards. Whatever's come through, uh, that payload can take advantage of that vulnerability. Well, there's two things, right? Is uh, okay. I accept that that's 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 a scenario that can happen. That uh, at which point we're now trying to cover. Uh, or mitigate uh, a different risk here, right? And the, the risk that we're trying to mitigate here is this unpatched vulnerability. Are we saying, so this unpatched vulnerability, how is, is the risk here because of the human error? They forgot to patch it. And we need to understand this, this scenario here. I mean, it, for you to think, oh, there is this potential risk. Uh, and, uh, the only way we can think of that is, is to understand the context. Is it that actually we do have a human intervened process in place? Therefore, there is this risk of the inevitable human error. And at which point we think the, the, the control to mitigate that human error is this firewall. Do we not think that it's the wrong control that's been applied here? If the risk here is human error, if the risk is human error, then surely the control that we need to be applying to this human error should be removing the human altogether. Well, I think a good example of this would be a SQL injection attack, right? I have an application server. It should be talking to the SQL server through, you know, whatever interface. Uh, but somehow the, it's been developed incorrectly. And there is this SQL injection vulnerability. If you have something in the path, say something like a WAF or something wow. along those lines, that's looking at that layer seven and going, oh, that looks like a SQL injection attack. So I'm just going to reject that. I, I think there still could be value putting a, a device between the two different things. Maybe not doing that through a traditional firewall, but still some type of filtering to, yeah. to guard against that. So, so that I agree, right? In principle, as in that there needs to be a function that's able to detect and prevent that from taking place. I agree with that, right? Whether that's the firewall or not, that's debatable. Where I think, in my view, uh, that would take place or should take place, as in this, this detection and control, uh, would be... Um, 
something, and this is an example, I don't think this exists today, where if we went back to this whole kind of distributed envoy proxy uh, uh, scenario, at this point in time, when we apply these kind of um, service controls, like service A can talk to service B, that enforcement takes place on the ingress of the envoy proxy. However, if we were able to apply those kind of similar controls, again, say around this from a SQL attack, uh, kind of a SQL injection attack, and obviously the ability to detect, or even say, don't allow anything outside of X, Y, Z, and also apply, apply that on the egress of an envoy proxy, right? Then you have a, a more distributed way of managing that instead of actually trying to centralize everything to file. And, and I would accept at this point, I don't know whether this exists or not, but the point is that, if if we were to push for that, you know, today we might be able to uh, develop something like that. But what it is our problem is that we try to rely on the current technology uh, and apply that into the cloud, um, especially mm. when well we're mm. gone. Part of this, I think, is driven by by compliance stuff. So I've had highlighted here in the notes that I definitely want to hit this compliance thing. I've supported PCI, SOCs, and HIPAA environments in the U.S for example. And so the way some of those regulations are written there, they can be fairly prescriptive with, you need to have a firewall here to separate these things and, and so on. Are they are, are those regulatory bodies, are those regulations and compliance regulations keeping up with public cloud and the fact that the paradigm is changing and you can have the same security that they intend for you to have, um, but in, a, in an updated and a modern way, not just replicating what we've done on-prem? Yeah, I'm, so I accept that there is that, right? The, 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 the regulatory body uh, that can be prescriptive uh, and, uh, and actually go to the nth degree to dictate or prescribe how to isolate uh, data uh, uh, from you know, unauthorized access. Um, in the UK, I can only speak to the UK here, right? In, in the UK, uh, I know that um, FCA, who, who take their guidelines from uh, NCSE, FCA is a financial conduct authority, they take the guidelines from NCSE, which is the National Cyber Security Centre, uh, and have been, uh, they've actually very up to date uh, and recently have published out uh, a, a guidelines around zero trust architecture in the cloud. Their guidelines are more high level uh, um, and more of a recommendation. So the, the guidelines will be around being sure that the, the emphasis here is the data uh, and uh, ensuring that the data is isolated from unwanted uh, access. And then they start providing recommended guidelines around, okay, well, this can be done through, say, IAM, this can be done through, say, mutual TLS. Um, but actually, the funny thing is, they do say, they do, they say that you, if the, the network is too large, uh, such as an enterprise, then it should be treated as if it was a public internet. Therefore, don't trust the network. Um, so, yeah. I, but I appreciate and agree. Obviously, you know this will vary from country to country. Um, but I believe, and I strongly believe, and I think one of the reasons why I, I joined uh, the likes of the Hatch Corp um, is that I think there needs to be a push uh, from these vendors uh, as well as, as well as uh, say enterprise consumers. When I was working in my last role, for example, we did come across these kind of roadblocks, and uh, um, we wanted to we did start talking to uh, FCA, and we got clarity there. So in our case, actually, it was more of a the guidelines were not so clear. Once we've actually had directly liaised with them, we, we realised that uh, we we got clarity. But I do believe. There, there's a massive effort that there's a massive gap there, um, especially in the effort of building uh, more clarity or um, let's just say working together with uh, uh, the likes of FCA or PCI uh, to understand or educate 
the, uh, the, the, the nature of cloud and how it works uh, and therefore actually to be less prescriptive, but also uh, even for the cloud providers uh, as well as for the cloud, cloud-based vendors to understand you know, how, is, how do their products or how do solutions within their platform, how are they, how should they be um, built to be say PTI compliant or how should they be built to be uh, HIPAA compliant. Now, these are efforts that I 100% believe needs to take place, uh, especially given that they have the, that they built the platform, right? And, and they built the platform with a, their, their opinion of how it should be. Therefore, I also believe it's in their responsibility to also then reach out to these regulations to help educate them and then help rewrite um, guidelines that can be easier to consume. Gotcha. So I will say that as far as my knowledge, I don't know about GCP, but both Azure and AWS do have guidance docs, architecture docs that recommend an architecture for PCI or HIPAA. Now, assuming you follow that, they don't guarantee you're going to pass because they don't want that legal responsibility. But they do have at least the the guidance on that that takes advantage of of some of this stuff. Uh, But I think it's really an education component, not so not partly for the cloud engineers. They need to educate themselves on different options out there. But additionally, those cloud engineers also need to bring the compliance security folks into the conversation and let them know, hey, these are your options. And this is a compensating control for this. So you no longer have to go with the traditional approach. There is another approach that meets the same ultimate goal. Yeah, I mean, well, so there's two things there, right? I mean, the first is that, uh, yeah, you're right. I, you know, there needs to be more of those kind of guidelines out there to say, hey, you know, these are compliant. And, and, and I emphasize the word compliant here, that they probably read the guidelines and based on the guidelines, these are the solutions that they built and they believe it to be compliant. They're not saying certified because the regulations haven't certified it. But more so though, I think is that even those, I've, I've read those guidelines, right? And from when I read those guidelines, or when I read those kind of solution uh, architects or recommended or reference architectures or recommended patterns, when I read them, I realized that they haven't gone to the regulations and spoke to them and say, hey, you need to change how you uh, um, prescribe your guidelines because look, this is how our cloud are built. Rather, what they've done is just pulled off the public box and based on that, they've built out the solution architecture. Because if you look at them, for example, the PCR compliant ones, they're still recommending network segregation. They're still recommending a separate VPC. So even though, and this is, I'm, I'm talking about Google Cloud as well, right? Even though their constructs where they know that the, the isolation is already achieved they still recommend separate vc because maybe they, you know they want to get some kind of uh, they quickly this is easily consumable people will just you know sign that off or something and, and they get on with it rather than actually going back to the uh, to, to the regula- regulation say hey you know this network segregation that you're talking about you know it's unfair uh because we've managed to achieve you know, what is it that you ultimately want to achieve here is it the application isolation or is it the data isolation if so we've already achieved that so why are you prescribing network segmentation as an example right and these are the education that needs to happen but when you look at these guidelines they don't reflect that I'm rudely cutting into this conversation to ask you where you're at with your multi-cloud networking strategy, because a few different multi-cloud networking vendors, they've come on as podcast guests and they've shared their approach here on the Pack and Bushers podcast network. One of those vendors is today's sponsor, Aviatrix. And in fact, you heard from Aviatrix engineers and a customer as Ned and I nerded out with them on the Day 2 Cloud podcast, episode number 113. We covered their data plane that's common across all the different clouds, giving you consistent network operations. Now, 
If Aviatrix isn't a company name you know very well, don't just blow them off. I challenge you to consider all vendors that might solve your problems, and Aviatrix is going out of their way to make it easy for you to include them in your upcoming multi-cloud networking bake-off. First, they are well-funded, so they're going to be around for a long time. Tell your boss, Aviatrix just closed a $200 million Series E funding round if you get asked. Second, Aviatrix is also offering nerdy deep dives for you, the engineer, so that you can make an informed, nuanced decision about whether Aviatrix is the right multi-cloud networking strategy for your organization. They call it flight training, and you can go for a 90-minute hands-on lab, a five-hour deeper instructor-led hands-on experience, and even prep for the Aviatrix Certified Engineer Certification. So give day 2 cloud episode 113 a listen. And then visit aviatrix.com slash flight dash training to find out more. I'm hoping to take the five-hour flight school training sometime myself soon if they can find room for me. Again, that is aviatrix.com slash flight dash training and let them know you heard about it on the Packet Pushers podcast network. And now back to today's episode. Well, the joke about these regulations too is being compliant with the regulations does not necessarily mean that you're secure. Uh, as well as something else. They're, they're a guideline. They're a good place. So you, can, you can go an awful long way with it, but just being compliant with a particular regulation does not guarantee a secure environment. Um, and, and you're coming at it from a different way, saying, uh, hey, we can be compliant and not meet the regulation, uh, or we can be secure and not meet the uh, the, the regulation uh, and not <laughs> and not be compliant a deal. I'm all twisted yeah, up no, in my ways, man. No, no, no. Yeah, there's a good example of that. I can give you a good example of that, actually. Uh, so in my previous role, for example, they um, they try to uh, anchor on the fact that, oh, we must uh, encrypt uh, sensitive data or, co- or confidential data uh, with our own keys, uh, and especially, say, PII data. And it has to be with our own keys, uh, and we must demonstrate control uh, and rotation, et cetera, et cetera, right? So when I I, I started looking deep into the into those kind of guidelines or, or the regulations uh, and the prescriptions there, and the thing is what they what they say is that should you encrypt with you know with your own keys? Uh, so first of all, they say that it's actually enough for you to pro- uh, receive an SLA from your cloud service provider, uh, and this is obviously again I'm talking about UK here. Is it enough for you to get an SLA from your cloud service? So a part of the shared response model it's enough for you to get an SLA from your cloud service for whether that they have encrypted it and they are managing and, and you know and they are able to provide a whole audit report to demonstrate that they've provided they've um they've demonstrated the whole rotation and management of those keys and the auditing capabilities around those right so their reports uh, or annual reports are enough for the likes of FCA to use and accept as compliant right so that's the first thing second thing though is okay let's go with let's go with the uh, scenario where okay Okay, we must you know uh, demonstrate the ability to be able to rotate and own those keys, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So in Google, they have something called kind of CMEC, right? The Customer Managed Encryption Key, um, where you would use the Google Plus KMS, uh, uh, generate a KMS key, and then you would encrypt, say, a GCS bucket or a hard drive with this KMS key. Uh, and security professionals are believing that okay, this is how we are demonstrating the whole management of rotation of the key, and yeah, t- technically we own the key because it's under the you know the ownership of, of, of our uh, bank, uh, the account of the banks. But the truth, in, in truth though, is that that CMEC enabled, say, GCS bucket, well, what they mean there is that, well, first of all, the KMS key is not what's encrypting the data. It's, it, it's that's, that's a check, right? The key encryption key, which is encrypting the 
uh, GCP owned uh, DAC, the data encryption key. So all you've done is demonstrated the, the rotation and management of a key that's encrypting the key and not the data. So right. actually, you're not compliant, <laughs> but you've got this false, false sense of control. And all you've done is actually added a, a, an operational hazard uh, and, and increased operational complexity. Because obviously with KMS keys, um, there, there's that danger of where if you deleted that KMS key, you've lost that data forever. <laughs> right. I think that's, that's an important uh, thing to really draw out a little bit. And what you're talking about is we have this idea of security of defense in depth that I, I need multiple layers of security and more layers is probably better, right? Because if they get through one layer, oh, there's another layer. Now you can't get through that one. But each of those layers, like managing your own key, that is another layer of administrative burden, complexity, and a possible failure as well. Because if, like you said, you mishandle the key, you, you lose the device that has the original key on it. Uh, you're kind of <laughs> up the creek without a paddle, as it were. 100%, I mean, there, there is that piece, right? But okay, that's again, you might have some security professionals that will show no empathy towards that, right? They won't, they won't show any empathy towards the, the operational complexity or any workflows around that. Uh, you know, they're simply just going to mandate you must have it, how you do it, that's up to you. Okay, fine, fair enough. Your security, let's go with the security perspective, right? You know, have you considered that each of these uh, 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 layers is an additional attack surface? Uh, therefore, there's an attack vector here. I mean, I, I'd give you one example. Um, in my last role, again, when I was uh, rolling out HashiCorp Vault, um, I ensured that you know everyone has access to Vault. There is no networking uh, kind of restriction about who can access Vault. Every client is essentially a Vault client. A RVM is a Vault client, and we will control the um, you know the RBAC through Vault policies. Um, and the security team uh, then we're going to respond to that we should have a broker, and we should also have you know multiple layers of load balancers or firewalls. Actually, two layers of firewalls, um, and then obviously having a broker in between. All of this stuff, right? And I said and to, to prevent from what, what? What are you trying to prevent? What are you trying to mitigate here? Oh, you know, DDoS attack. I said, well, if they did a DDoS to the firewall, your your vault services are unavailable, right? Let's 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 consider that. You know, adding all of these other layers. If if those layers were were then compromised. When I say compromised, at this point, they you know added DDoS attack, and therefore normal traffic can't go through. Then your vault service is unavailable. So the, the impact is just as is just as much as if if you had your vault service open uh, to all of the other clients. So really, the problem hasn't gone right. I mean, you're arguing the difference between designing. A holistic security system where every step is designed to work as an integrated whole versus I on this team are responsible for this piece. And so therefore I have to have that piece in place so that when things go sideways, I don't get blamed, which sadly is what often happens. It is true. But in the truth of the matter is, right, now, now let's take it back to uh, on a business level. Why has an enterprise gone into the cloud? You know, and the bottom line is they want to save money. Right, they, they they've been promised, they've been given an ROI to say if you go into the cloud, the X number of VMs that you spend on prem compared to doing it into the cloud, you're saving X Y Z money. But the, what's what's not apparent there is that well, 
If you were to design and consume the cloud consumption model this way, then you will save this money, right? So, which means that actually those silos that you've created and those, or, or you have on-prem rather, and those change, human intervenes, change review process, human review process that you have. Well, if you want to apply that into the cloud, you're actually more expensive. And what happens, and you'll see, and in my experience, what's happened is that these, you know, third year into the program, the, the, the plug gets pulled because oh, it's too expensive. We're not seeing the returns and actually come back to on-prem again. This is what you see because the execs obviously don't understand why is that they're not saving the money that they've been promised. Now, it's, so the point I'm trying to make here is that security or governance and all of these silo things they need they don't and they probably probably don't have uh, deliberately don't have the business context and they should. I mean, for example, let's talk about uh, some of these securities and, and the impact of, uh, of such. If, for example, there is a risk, um, I don't know, let's come back to the uh, um, example of uh, lateral movement and networking. So we have full confidence that all applications are secure at the top layer. Um, however, security professionals are, are, are demanding and mandating that we should start uh, specifying which ports should be open in each of these hosts. Um, and uh, we should have host-based firewalls. And uh, uh, in addition to that, um, I can't think of other controls, but let's just add all of this stuff, right? What's the risk here? I mean, are, are we saying, oh, no, it's, it's just best practice. <laughs> the, the, the thing is what we need to understand here is that if there are, if there are no risks, or let's just say we did get a, a, um, a rogue, uh, rogue attack, or I think rather a, an authorized access into the network. My question would be, so what? Right? It's like, if there is no impact, right? Why are you investing upfront? And I'm, again, I'm not dismissing that these uh, controls to be applied, but I think if you take the business impact into consideration, it helps you prior prioritize those controls. Yeah, you're arguing for risk assessment. What is the risk? And if the risk is tolerable enough why are we why are we killing ourselves with all of this complexity either in the design or the cost to put this control point in if the risk is tolerable we can handle it if yeah. we get hit with that thing it's fine yeah and, and especially and, and what we need to understand is right by if you think oh well it's nice to have what's what's the harm in doing that you know is it not better to have multiple layers anyways well have you not considered the unintended consequences that have come about because of those right let's understand that and, and start weighing up the pros and cons and this is what, what we're not we're doing because we're so again the silos haven't gone we're so isolated with actually not having contextual architecture uh, and, and this is it's extremely important you know um especially like, even with this the whole KMS piece, right? If the data, given that it's not storage, and, and one of the things I, I want, there was one security professional I, I was ha having an argument about is that, let's, let's use the example of the, um, the a VM image, uh, and security professionals uh, were mandating that those VM images must be encrypted with the KMS key. Um, and uh, uh, so I asked them the difficult question, why? And they, oh, because someone might pull the image down from GCS bucket and then fire it up on their VMware uh, virtual box. I'm like, this is, this, is, this is where we need to understand. A VM image in the cloud is not the same as a, a VMDK, uh, as an example, right? It's not a file. You know, we, it's, it's an object that is represented as a file to us, but in reality, they're sharded pieces of, you know, multiple developers that have come together to represent this VM image to us. You know, when you understand that the, the underlay engine, the, the storage engine, for example, or the image engine, right, they're 
built up of multiple components, and, and which Google Cloud has published. I know I always keep referencing back to Google Cloud. It's only because that's where you know majority of my cloud experiences are. But, you know, they've even published all these white papers to explain how Andromeda works, how Colossus works, and they, they will tell you that how all of these images in in reality at the back end that they are just started different types of you know, an object and even if you did for example did happen to bring them all together you can't spin them up with a, a you know with virtual box thinking that it, oh you'd be represented as a vmdk so that's the first piece of understanding right but let's just say you can so what is my my next i still i will ask the question again so right <laughs> so what right is that okay so someone managed to download a vm you know uh, that was uh, that was based by the bank so what? Okay, and then there's the next one. Oh, we might have to. Oh, it might have. Why are you baiting a based golden image with sensitive information? And or might have sensitive information. And you know, a bit a baked image should just have um, a manifest of what the bank is uh, presumed to be your secure image. For example, it should have you know Splunk agent installed in it. It should have uh, other kind of different monitoring agents, your stack drive agent installed. In it. But any sensitive information or like I don't know, say password back to home. Right? Right, uh, uh, for connectivity, if you, you know, again, I know I'm talking contextual here, right? But if in, in the scenario where you have a secrets manager or you have something like Vault, then essentially you would spin up Vault agent and that would then pull up all these secrets. And, you know, and this is all at runtime, this is boot time. Once booted up, it will pull, pull, pull these secrets or credentials, place them in the necessary in it for any file, and then those agents, other agents will, uh, will then operate based on that. Right. And, and right. in our scenario, we did that, right? In our scenario, we did have our base images that way. So I don't understand what the problem is if someone did say manage to find it. I mean, first of all, the way the, the nature of the cloud is even um, an internal, say, Google employee can't actually, you know, steal a disk and find anything in there. Secondly, the the bucket that it's stored to again, that bucket is a is a backend uh, endpoint which no one else has access to. But let's just say, so forget all of that, right? You know, forget all these other controls. Even let's just say it was bare, properly bare, and it's open. What's the problem? Yeah, and I think that should be the first question we should ask before we start creating all these controls to a non-existing risk. I love the ideal school of security. So what? So what if it happens? <laughs> Is that so bad? It's, it, it, I, I, it's, re it's yeah. really an important question. I like the two things that you keep coming back to is so what and why. <laughs> so like, yeah. When someone comes to you with a control they want you to put in place, what's the actual risk that you're trying to mitigate against? And why is that a problem? And and uh, the thing that I keep coming back to is you're talking about all these additional services and options and features that exist in the cloud that allow you to approach a security issue from a totally different light, like having mm -hmm. a secrets manager where you can store all of that sensitive data. You don't have to bake it into the golden image. You can just have it dynamically pull that boot up and you can configure that secrets manager to only accept requests from a validated identity, which gets back to our identity conversation that VM has an identity on any of the clouds. They all have some version of that. Yeah. And if if it can't verify the identity, the secrets manager goes, no, you can't talk to me and get that information. So like that completely makes sense to me. Uh, one last thing I want to bring up, and it, this is because we've really been focusing on GCP. And, uh, you know, obviously there's at least three big clouds out there and then other clouds as well. Uh, alternative public clouds, I've heard them called. <laughs> how does your concepts, how do your concepts map to a multi-cloud world where an organization isn't just dealing with GCP, but they're also dealing with Azure and AWS, let's say? 
Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a gap, right? And, and that's a um, the reason why I say this is because obviously with uh, if you were to consume say AWS or Azure or GCP, you know it's, it, it just those that cloud alone, you're, you're taking advantage of their native uh, cloud identity system to be able to manage that, right? The moment you start going to this multi-platform, given that we don't really have a good story around a vendor neutral kind of a solid accepted identity uh, uh, system, yeah, it becomes quite difficult to do. I mean, we have, from a user base, let's, 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 let's take it back to from a user base, right? We have these uh, multiple identity providers now, like, like Okta, like Centrify, all of these different ones for a human. And, and they've got a good story now where they try to add all these different factors, uh, um, uh, kind of uh, authentication factors to identify you properly. For example, you know, the location, uh, kind of the the what device are you coming from? Uh, what kind of time zone you're from? As in, like, is it the usual business hours for you? Uh, um, and uh, there's obviously various other factors, right? Uh, and uh, all of these build this kind of trust to say, okay, actually you're authorized to access X, Y, Z. Or like, for example, if you're not coming from an untrusted device, uh, then you do have access to your emails, but you won't have access to Git. Now, you know, there's a good story there, but you know. <laughs> There needs to be a good story for machine authentication. Because what I'm suggesting here, right, is essentially is that we move. I've already assumed that the human element is now removed away from the process. So for you to remove the human element, that means that we have a good story around human authentication. I'm sorry, uh, machine authentication, right, and machine identity. I mean. You could possibly, for example, Vault, right? How do you call Vault? I know I keep on talking, referring back to a Vault as well, but only because I'm quite passionate about it and I've been using it a lot. But Vault, for example, you have, you can have, you create multiple authentication methods like, you know, AWS, so that Vault can then recognize uh, um, AWS machine identity because uh, it will just plug it into the AWS platform. And this by the same virtue for Google Cloud and Azure, right? So th there, is a, there is a potential where actually I can maybe, for example, have Azure VMs to be able to consume content from a GCS bucket. And, and how we would do that would be, we would have to uh, first speak to Vault. Vault would then provide it as a, a, a dynamically generated credential, pass that back to the uh, the Azure VM, and then the Azure VM would use that to consume GCS. So I mean, it is possible, um, but there is obviously this this is still the element of passing credential around. I mean, so the one of the things I discussed in in our Hashcast uh, with, with Rob was that ideally, right, is we need to move away from secret zero uh, and. Um, We've we've bought essentially. Uh, even though I don't like to call it secrets manager because I I don't think it does justifies it. Rather, I think it's a dynamic access management. But the only problem is how does it provide access? It provides access by provi by providing or generating credentials, right? But what we really need to do is move away from credentials in the first place. Just like how Azure, AWS, and Google have a good story when they do uh, the whole IAM control. When you can say actually this GCS bucket can only be uh, has read access or sorry this VM has read access to this GCS bucket. There are no credentials that be passed around to make that happen. So uh, in today, for a multi-cloud scenario, you will need to have some kind of central, um, say, multi-platform accessible uh, uh, function like Vault or say console, uh, as another example, with console service mesh, 
that or uh, I, I forget console, just a federated service mesh, right? Um, uh, across multiple plat uh, plat platforms that can also kind of unify those kind of uh, uh, resource uh, identity. Um, and Vault, Vault, again, can also kind of facilitate that as well from the point where if you were to integrate Vault in every process or in, uh, kind of uh, every kind of communication process, so a VM talking to another VM or, you know, uh, talking to, say, I don't know, a BigQuery or, or, or RDS must go through Vault to then generate a credential on the fly and give that to you. We can do that today. But in an ideal world, really, we should be moving towards something that has is more credential less. Uh, but it does mean that that identity would be central or has a centralized rather it will be ubiquitous. And I just see that will be accepted across multiple platforms. I think that's a future state, right? Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it is a future state and it feels like it feels like actually a, a kind of a natural place for us to end up this conversation today, Adil. Man, I think you have fit in twice as many words as any of our other guests ever. You talk so fast. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. Especially when I get passionate. I like I, I, the thing is I've got so much in my mind. I, I feel like I need to unload and I, I sometimes do. Uh, I have all this context out of my head, but I, I talk, I think everyone already knows what I'm talking about. Uh, no, it's it's great. But but compartmentalize uh, three three big things, three takeaways from this episode, things you want to leave the listener with just, uh, just and keep them tight. Some bullet points that folks can walk away with from today. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, okay. But three ways that are succinct, right? Is that first of all, I would say security is everyone's job. So it's about the awareness that actually every different function should have. So you shouldn't be centralized back to the security professional. Second is uh, understanding uh, the the business risk. Uh, and, and actually not just that, is to uh, don't be afraid to go ahead and actually carry out a streamlined validation process. Uh, even though these risks seem to be the same risk that you may uh, seemingly seems to be you know, appearing on prem, don't be afraid to go ahead and run a validation process. That's the second one, and the third is understanding um, the identity piece and understanding how uh, how the identity being the, the 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 primary layer and and what is that what does that look like for each different cloud providers. Well, those are three things I think uh, are fundamental uh, to to go into the cloud. The identity thing is especially big uh, to me. Um, the, the more I've thought about some of your ideas when I was listening to those hashicasts that you were on earlier and so on, that's the point I keep coming back to, that identity changes the game when how we think about securing application workloads and flows and so on. Uh, Adil, how can folks follow you on the internet? I'm on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, DevOps underscore Adil. Um, yeah, that's one I'm most active on, uh, and uh, I'm I'm keen on getting lots of feedback from everyone. I, I mean, I may be wrong. These are all personal ideas I have, so I'd love to share this with everyone. And really, the more people can come together, maybe there's some kind of mature story that comes out of this. Yeah, and Adil really does want to have more conversations with you. This whole show began because he pinged me on Twitter just to have a chat about some of the things that he was talking about on on a couple of Hashicast podcasts and uh, we had some back and forth and some dialogue and it turned into this show and so yeah at devops underscore deal hit him up with your thoughts and ideas and questions and uh, let's get a conversation going as a group of people that listen to day two cloud that'd be fantastic so deal thanks to you again for appearing on day two cloud and if you're still listening out there virtual high fives to you Ooh, you made it amazing if you have suggestions for future shows ned and i want to hear them we monitor at day two cloud show on twitter so tweet us your ideas and if you're not a twitter person that's cool. Go to Ned's fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. He's got a form there and you can submit your ideas there. 
A little bit of housekeeping now. Did you know that you don't have to scream into the technology void alone? You're not alone out there because the Packet Pushers Podcast Network has a free Slack group that's open to everybody. Visit packetpushers.net slash Slack and join. It's a marketing-free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories, and solve problems together. Packetpushers.net slash Slack. And we'll see you in there. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.